0: Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to Just Sustainability, curious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. this episode, we return to the conversation that I had with Nina Ortiz. The first clip that I'm going to play for you is a bit longer than the clips I usually include in this podcast. Uh, Nina and I had a pretty dynamic exchange that was, uh, at least for anyone who knows me well enough, uh, surprisingly on topic and not disrupted by me going on a tangent. In that exchange, Nina and I discussed why she thought equity was an important consideration for sustainability, and particularly in the context of small rural communities and the institutions of higher education that she and I work with. And she also made a few suggestions about how small communities and the academy could approach being more accepting of change, even when those changes might be uncomfortable.
1: So I think both in talking about, like, the survivability of rural communities, right? Mm -hmm. Just in their sort of like economic situations, right? This is always the concern. Will our community survive? And I think higher ed sometimes now is having that same conversation. How can we survive? How do we keep our institutions and how do we keep our departments open and Mm -hmm. hiring lines and these kinds of things? And I think in both cases, one of the important aspects of that is to be flexible Mm -hmm. and to be a again, like willing to learn <laughs> and willing to say, this has worked for us because this was the context. It's mm-hmm. not going to keep working for us because this context is shifting. The economy is shifting. Right. The kinds of students that we're attracting are shifting. The kinds of students we want to attract <laughs> is shifting. And so if we want that to be successful in that new context, we have to be flexible and do things differently and mm-hmm. think about you know, inclusion and how to make expectations clear and how to make, you know, minimize barriers to participation. And and I think that's true in rural communities as well as in schools, particularly yeah. small schools, but all kinds of higher ed schools where we're thinking about the price of education is changing and the economy in which students are seeking education is changing. And so if we want those spaces to reflect the kinds of communities that we want to live in, inclusive shifting open i think we have to think about flexibility and yeah. learning what are the skills that we need to learn as an institution to be able to make that happen because those are not the skills that we were mostly taught as academics no
0: right <laughs> right 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 because I, I think there is i mean i think particularly for those of us i think there's maybe a generational shift i'm, mm-hmm. I'm noticing yeah. most, folks younger than us. They are much better at that than we are. But yes. like I right, I think we're sort of like mm-hmm. we're at that sort of cusp because I think yeah, we both got our PhDs at roughly the same time. Yeah. And we're both still sort of like we're in between that old school mm-hmm. way of like, no, like the right. we should be getting people to think like us. Because right. we think better than other folks. Right. Do so younger folks are very mm-hmm. you know cognizant of the fact mm-hmm. that There are different ways to approach problems and that we need to be thinking about things from a broad Mm -hmm. perspective because that that enlightenment perspective has (laughs) – was good for many things but has left some important things out.
1: Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And it's hard because we have been successful. People like us have been successful in this system because we get how it works. And so that sometimes leads us to think that that's the way it should be. And not just that that's one way that it can be. And and that's really hard, right? Change is difficult. (laughs) And again, right, when I think about making changes, particularly working with younger people and thinking Mm -hmm. about what do they want from the institution, what do they want from an education, and sort of how that can conflict (laughs) with my understanding of how education is supposed to work and how institutions do work. That could be really scary. Um, and you know you can see it in, in discussions about yeah. you know, rigor and you know, grading and, and these kinds of things. But I think if we want to have sustainable institutions, sustainable communities, we need to be willing to think about change mm-hmm. and what kinds of change can be beneficial. Yeah. Even though they might seem scary,
0: <laughs> no, I mean what you said makes me think about like some of the small towns around here. Now, mm-hmm. I don't want to throw shade at any yeah, of the small yeah. towns, but like I think of the example, like of Wilmer, who mm-hmm. I think is doing things very right. right? Mm-hmm. so like my favorite town around here, again not throwing <laughs> shade at the other towns, is Wilmer, and sure. because right, like it, it has a really vibrant downtown community. Right, mm-hmm. there's really interesting restaurants, mm-hmm. interesting shops, yes. Um, There's just a a lot going on, and it's not all the same. (laughs) Right. right? Wilmer stands out as a town very different from the ones around here. Yes. And I remember noticing that and then sort of asking folks around to try to figure (laughs) out why that was the case. Mm -hmm. And then learning that the the city of Wilmer has very intentionally promoted Mm -hmm. immigrant business. Right. uh, In a way that, like, other towns have sometimes done the exact opposite. Right. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, And then thinking, like, huh. Wait, that's a great model for thinking about how can institutions more broadly can right. could be continue to be mm-hmm. vibrant or be more vibrant, thinking about responding mm-hmm. to changes in, in people.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and even changes in context. So yeah. like rural communities sometimes have a really difficult time moving away from a nostalgia for how things used to be in their communities, sure. right? When the economy was different yeah. and when they you know, maybe the local town economy was more vibrant and the the makeup of the farm economy was somewhat different. Mm-hmm. And, and because that's not the case now, there's this, like, desire to go back to doing things how we had done them when that was the case right, right. without sort of seeing this bigger picture about how there were a lot of other things that were different, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think one of the things that Wilmer has been able to do in supporting, uh, like, new business owners and ethnic business owners in particular has been really great for oh. their community. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> no. But, but that can, it can seem really scary to, yeah. to go forward into a new and different future than the it, it then yeah. it, it seems safer to like be like, Oh, let's do things like we did it in 1950 because We think that worked, Uh and and it was lovely at that time, and everything was safer and more prosperous, and and I think that's uh, a mindset that does not allow (laughs) for the kinds of flexibility that is required for a new economic context and a new transnational business economic Uh context, like you see in Wilmer, and that can be really exciting for communities like that, right? That. Now you have these transnational connections between Somalia and Mexico and different places in Central America and right. and this community and you ha- that's really exciting for a place yeah. well, <laughs> on now, the prairie. Yeah, because
0: yeah, there's, there's this, a uh, yeah, it's a feeling that you don't often see in small towns. Right. right. Like, I, I think, like I, I actually do think Wilmer there is kind of in some ways, more cosmopolitan than even the mm-hmm. Twin Cities. Sure. Right? Because there's actually better representation of a broad <laughs> range of cultures. Sure. Right? The Twin mm-hmm. Cities, there you might have kind of a broader... <laughs> like number Spectrum, of cultures being yeah. represented but it, they're not nearly as well represented right, right? and not mm-hmm. even i think proportionally represented often,
1: right yeah
0: While I, I think in wilmer it might be yeah. actually overrepresented, represented <laughs> in some it, ways like, a, for sure yeah which gives it a really kind of cool feel
1: mm-hmm. absolutely and it provides really interesting opportunities for new community members right? right so if you go to a place like chicago the chances that you are gonna you know have the opportunity to be involved in like civic government yeah. <laughs> at a high level are pretty minimal as a newly arrived immigrant yeah. but uh as a person who moves to a place like Wilmer Within a few years, you could be a school board member or a city council member or, you know, playing really, really important roles in, you know, governance and economics in the local community. Yeah. Um, And I think that's really exciting for for as a person who lives in these places. (laughs) It's really exciting for me. But I can see for a lot of community members, there's some hesitation there about like how. How, what does this mean for us mm. to be a community if I don't know right. my neighbor,
0: right? right.
1: And yeah. if I don't even speak the same language as my neighbor.
0: Right. And particularly if, uh, it was historically the case that the community was very represented, uh, right. representative of your values in right. your perspective and then seeing mm-hmm. community shift to, to, right, to, to have a broader set of perspectives being exactly. represented in the, yeah, the, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's tricky, right? Because um, I see people do things like they'll say like, you know, some groups of immigrants are really hard workers or they mm-hmm. they really care about family values. And as an anthropologist, I really try to um, gently push people to recognize that everybody cares about their family. They just maybe define family differently or they enact care (laughs) in different ways that you might not recognize, Uh, but that all people generally around the world care about their families. And so what does that mean to be a community that has a variety of ways to enact care and kinship? And Mm -hmm. how can we support those broad ideas of care and kinship as a community rather than being like, you're not doing it like I do it. So it right. doesn't count.
0: <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a question that's related to this as, right. As an educator, how mm-hmm. do you do that? <laughs> so how do you, how, how, so what are the things you're trying to teach your students? Right. So like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, more, so often, we often pride ourselves as <laughs> being that, the most sort of diverse school in the system, mm-hmm. but it's still the case that we have a large number of students who represent, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Dominant culture, sure. uh, Mm -hmm. Right, that that are you know white cis Mm -hmm. uh, straight Mm -hmm. um, that are in that the the demographic that is seeing perspective shift from privileging theirs to other folks. Mm -hmm. How do how do you try to teach those students uh, skills to, or or, maybe just skills, just skills and attitudes, the things that help them navigate that Mm -hmm. that shift.
1: So one of the things that I really try to do is think about and talk to students directly about being comfortable with ambiguity. Okay. Like how, and again, right, when you have those uncomfortable moments of not being the expert and not having any idea about what's going on, how do you go anyway? How do you (laughs) exist in that space and still be okay, right? Uh, Because lots of people do that all the time, right? Immigrants experience this all the time. People who speak two languages experience this discomfort all the time. So what is that like then for people who've never experienced it to like learn how to do that? And so I try to have them do activities, right? Mm -hmm. Like go into a grocery store that you've never been in before, go into, you know, some community space that you've never been in before Mm -hmm. and just be comfortable with not knowing what's going on. Um, And then also to then reflect on that experience and say, what made me uncomfortable? Why did I feel like I didn't belong here? Uh What does that mean for how I exist in my community? And just to be aware that their perspective is not the only one, Right. right? So I do a lot of activities. I start off my introductory anthropology class by asking students to map out their social networks and what is similar and different or diverse within their networks. Mm. So thinking about social class and education levels and social roles, gender roles, um, economics, sometimes like how many of the people in your social network own their own car, Mm. (laughs) these kinds of things. How many have been to jail before? How many speak the same language? How many go to the same church? And to just think about the ways in which their own social network is constrained. Mm -hmm. Because then throughout the semester, when they're like, well, I've never heard of that, you can go back to the social network and think, well, I've never heard of that because nobody in my social network has that experience. So who can I listen to and and give credence to that has had that experience and why do I need to do that instead of just saying I've never heard of that, it's not a thing.
0: Right. So (laughs) do you get your students to discuss the networks that they come up with? Yes. Right? Like so like actually contrast (laughs) so people see like, oh this is my network. Right. This is not the network. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And we do it as a class as well. So that we can talk about we who we are as a class. So for example in some classes I've had no student who is a parent. (laughs) And so when we talk about kinship and parenting, I remind them, remember that this is not an experience that any of us in this room have, Mm -hmm. so... Who can we talk to? Who do we know that we can ask what their experience of being a parent is like? And again, in what ways is that information limited by the kinds of people that we know who are parents and the kinds of people we have access to to ask that question? Um, And just really think about, you know, nobody is going to be omniscient, Mm -hmm. right? So there's no way that you could know the thing.
0: It's actually kind of, a, thinking about it, it's a useful tool, I think, kind of more broadly, right? So it's, right. I think it's useful for thinking about what perspectives are included in decision-making exactly. and not. Right? So I think if we're thinking about institutions or if we're thinking about, like, smaller things like kind of research <laughs> projects and teams. Right. Thinking about what connections one has. Exactly. Really explicitly... Helps Mm -hmm. one identify the connections one does not
1: have. Exactly. Exactly. And I think about this a lot, particularly because I have students who want to do like independent research projects. Sure. And they come and they say, I want to email this survey out to all the students. Right. (laughs) And so then we have to go like okay, is email the right way to communicate this? What kinds of questions? What kinds of answers are you going to get from this? And try to help them think, right? How is that a limiting factor rather than an all-encompassing, inclusive (laughs) approach, right? Like, does this, you know, limit it to people who are good at at communicating in written form? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean for the kinds of data that you get and the kinds of answers to the questions you're asking? And, Mm -hmm. you know, when we think about inclusion on committees or decision-making bodies, right? I often think about, you know, like, I pay attention a lot in meetings, particularly because I get bored and I'm an anthropologist, but... (laughs) One of the things that I do in meetings is an exercise that I have students sometimes do uh, in classes. And that is make tick marks about who's talking and how much and when Mm. and what are the characteristics that they share or don't share. Right. So Mm. is it only people on the left side of the the room who are talking or getting called on? Is it only Uh women? Is it only men? Is it only older people? Is it only junior faculty? Is it only right? Like what are the things that the people who are talking share or not? Yeah. Um, Because it's a really sort of like Bechdel test (laughs) baseline about not who's being listened to necessarily, but who even gets to to voice something.
0: right? Or at least who feels comfortable enough to speak.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And then when you see what do those people have in common and what do they not have in common, or what do the people who aren't talking have in common, maybe they're All shy people, right? (laughs) Like, okay, so how do we include the voices of the shy people who don't want to talk, but probably also do have something to say? Sure. And and just thinking through those kinds of things, I think that's a really important just kind of like baseline exercise that I tend to do naturally as an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And because I get bored in meetings.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, I think boredom is... People always say, like, yeah, necessity is a mother invention. Right. I actually think boredom is...
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but it is really important. And I try to think about it as an instructor, obviously. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it has informed the way my pedagogy as well. So, you know, I now do things like, even though much of my class is like based on oral participation and volunteering to speak in class, Mm -hmm. I now purposefully include activities like free rights or, Mm -hmm. um, little takeaway activities. Right. So that before everybody leaves, they list their two takeaways and a question that they still have or how they felt about the class. Mm -hmm. And then that's, Providing some more input and feedback to me because I can read those and say, well, nobody was talking about this is because they all completely misunderstood the question. So let me bring it back in the next class period and address this thing that is clearly a topic of interest, but that they couldn't quite figure out how to vocalize.
0: At this point, Nina and I shifted gears in regards to the topic of our conversation. We went from talking about sustainability for small towns and institutions higher learning to what I, as a professional academic and a higher ed professional, think is the most interesting and important part of our conversation. Namely, how the practice of professional scholarship and how we communicate that scholarship needs to change to better serve the public.
1: I think one of my deepest interests in uh-huh. inclusivity and in higher ed and making sort of creating job security for ourselves in terms of like sustainability sure, sure. You're right. yeah. is, is really thinking about how we as academics make our work accessible and relevant to uh-huh. people in the community in ways that are consistent with how we think about ourselves as academics. Right. So like uh-huh. having published pieces behind paywalls is really, in so many ways and so many respects, just not a sustainable system for us, right? right? And we think about that as like the primary driver of rigor and, and innovation in our field. But a lot of the work that I do, I really feel like the things that I can talk about intellectually with my academic peers are probably not new <laughs> so much as they're very new to the people in the communities that I live in right mm-hmm. like the idea that bilingualism is not damaging to one's first language you know possibilities or whatever right yeah, yeah. is kind of something that a lot of community members aren't aware of huh. and That's like well established in academic literature and teaching and these kinds of things. But a lot of the members of the community that I live in, both English speaking and Spanish speaking, believe.
0: Right. If you teach both, they won't, yeah.
1: Right. That if you teach both, they won't learn them as well or they'll, their, you know, intellectual growth will be stunted in some way or, you know, it will be damaging in some way to them. And that's clearly not new knowledge. (laughs) The fact that that's incorrect is not new knowledge for most academics. But what worries me is that that is not common knowledge in the community. And so I think an important contribution (laughs) is Mm -hmm. to be making that clear and supporting, you know, things like bilingualism in schools and communities. But as an academic, getting credit for that is hard. Right. It's really hard because it's not, it's not new, it's not fancy, it's not fun or sexy, <laughs> so mm-hmm. much as, but it is really helpful and important to making the community that I live in more more sustainable, really, and, and better equipped to deal with a changing, globalized world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really am committed to hopefully seeing a shift in academia that makes space for those kinds of contributions by academics, mm-hmm. But that also values that in the academic world because mm-hmm. you know, it's really important stuff that we know that regular <laughs> regular people don't aren't thinking about. They don't have the time to do the research and, you know, go to the library and read all this stuff about language acquisition theory and and people like us can tell people that sort of thing and they'll believe us and we should be able to do that um, because that's a contribution that academics can make to our communities.
0: Well, and I think for more crass reasons it helps us <laughs> right sell the academy, the, right. the academy as something that's worth public support. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. I, it does strike me right so if you look at the you know the academics that people do listen to, it's mm-hmm. folks like Ag Scientists.
1: Right. Folks who actually
0: like are clearly doing things right. with you know uh, the the broader public in mm-hmm. mind. Absolutely. Um, and right the the things that for many of us that measure our success mm-hmm. within the academy yes. is completely opaque to everybody Absolutely. else. And so we just look like we're <laughs> folks who get paid a lot to do nothing.
1: Right. Absolutely. Right? We don't even
0: teach that well. Right.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Why are we paying them? Right. Like, with, like our tax dollars, right?
1: Absolutely. If we were
0: more clear about, look, we're mm-hmm. actually, you know, our research is in fact – Yes. Things that are going into the community.
1: Absolutely. And informing community activities and processes and institutions. Because we do spend a lot of time thinking about like the relationship between an institution and an individual's life experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have some stuff to say about that. Mm-hmm. But if the only academic credit I can get is for getting... Some kind of highfalutin article behind a paywall. Mm -hmm. Like, that's fun for me because I like to do that. And that's interesting to me to read new things and engage in these intellectual conversations. But that's not helping my community.
0: No. No, it's (laughs) it's true, right? I have to think about this because. Right, I always bring my hands a lot about like how I get, which is why I'm making a right. podcast. It strikes me. This yes. is something anyone can listen to. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, uh, and mm-hmm. I'm in this sort of position where I don't need to like have all those, like the ticks to keep my job. Right. So like I can do things that aren't, uh, um uh, right. Peer review articles all the time, but a lot of people can't. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that's a, that I think is a problem with higher Mm -hmm. education that for a lot of folks, the thing that we need to do to keep our jobs is the thing that is the least (laughs) helpful for the the communities that we're trying to to, to, to help.
1: Yes. And it promotes this sort of elitism that I'm very uncomfortable with. Right. So like I'll assign podcasts in my class for Mm -hmm. students, like as the course material Mm -hmm. that they are responsible for coming to class to discuss. And some students are very uncomfortable with that. Some of them love it, but some of them are like, wait, (laughs)
0: <laughs> what do we do with this?
1: <laughs> and and you know again that for me that's part of promoting inclusion and social justice is like mm-hmm. not everybody reads really well and not everybody enjoys reading the same way that I do mm-hmm. so what are some other modes of engagement that we can participate in because there are some really great podcasts mm-hmm. on really serious and theoretically deep issues just because they're not peer reviewed doesn't mean they're not amazing. Yeah. And so, how can we engage with that, particularly because it's accessible? So I love that you're doing a podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, it would be fun to like try to like pilot like a uh, right like peer reviewed podcast, right?
1: Right. <laughs> like the episode gets written, listened to
0: by like you know three or four people and like yeah, yes. this is good enough.
1: <laughs> right. Totally. <laughs> well, and I think that's the direction sort of that academics need to go into is like how do we validate these like public facing and publicly engaged processes because Mm -hmm. they are theoretically deep. Like in my opinion, you can't do really ethical and really well done community engagement without having a really deep theoretical basis on which to, you know, ask a question or understand how the question will be received when you ask it, right. um,
0: and then have just some of the results right. to that community, right? absolutely. otherwise it does feel extractive and exploitative. Right. But if the the research you're doing mm-hmm. isn't going back to the right. people that like, right, that you're mm-hmm. you're working with,
1: absolutely, you're taking from them. Right. Exactly. And to even think about that as extractive requires mm-hmm. an important self critique <laughs> of right. what we're doing, and there's no reason that that can't be. Peer-reviewed and validated by our institutions because it is important and necessary. Um, and so, I think this idea that you know peer review can only be for written stuff and mm. it can only be you know for particular kinds of journals and impact factors. And <laughs> I think I think all of that kind of stuff is more to our detriment than to to our. Uh, amazing future
0: <laughs> yeah well it is weird right it, it does suggest that we think that we can't do anything but read right, right? exactly
1: <laughs> <laughs> right and for a long time and i mean that's also for a long time no, time we do it for but a long time we read, i think for a lot of people they're like if we say that that's what academics can be doing that means mm. i have to do it sure and i i think there's space for a lot of different kinds of academics mm. um publicly engaged ones and ones who are more theoretical and, you know, article righty kind of people. And that's great. But it, I think we can open the door to other possibilities and right. that that will create a more sustainable future for ourselves.
0: I mean, it gives us a more space to work. I, I right. never know why we'd like <laughs> want to contra- constrain the space we want to work. Right. Like, this is something exactly. I've never quite understood. Like, I was, like when people are just like, oh, that's not rigorous enough. I'm just like, right. Why not? Yeah. Like, don't you want to try the other things? Like, <laughs>
1: right.
0: Yeah. hmm
1: I mean – And, it, and I, I, I think it's fascinating that a lot of times I think people say, you know, X thing isn't rigorous enough. Primarily because they don't know how it gets put together or how it happens, right? right. They, They don't have a concept of what goes into making it. Sure. Um, you know, and I, I, I'll admit, I'm – I do similar (laughs) sort of things sometimes with like artwork or music. Like I just don't get what goes into it. Mm -hmm. But that's the moment where I can learn new things and I can say, okay, so explain to me what it took to make this happen. Where does this come from? Um, And that's a really important learning moment. Mm -hmm. And I think all of us need to be reminded of those moments. I think it's I think it's one of the reasons that all instructors, no matter what they teach, should have to take a class in something they don't already know about. Yeah. Well, I mean,
0: <laughs> particularly like in the, this era where we, you know, we we recognize the importance of inter- interdisciplinarity, right. and cross-disciplinarity, right. And yet we, we're often so very constrained about mm-hmm. how we, like, what we think of as legitimate forms of production absolutely. and creation,
1: absolutely.
0: Uh, which is, yeah.
1: And we don't have a lot of models for, right. for how to make that shift. So for people like you and I who have been trained in this very sort of text-based, right. you know, academic literature kind of situation, it can be a big challenge to even be like, like, yes, I would like to have students turn in final projects in a variety of, of right. modes. But then how to grade that? Right? Right. Like how to – I. Because you have to know something on right. the receiving end to be able to be like, yes, that looks like you accomplished the goals of this assignment. And oftentimes we're unable to read, like read legibly yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> something that is not in written form that doesn't have a bibliography, that doesn't yeah. right, sort of meet these sort of classic written text ex- expectations. But I think that's a problem for us.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think it's <laughs> also uh, a failure to recognize that those are similar standards to how yes. other things are adjudicated, there's, right? There's nothing particularly rigorous about like the way we, we adjudicate text. It's right. still, in some sense, value driven. It's still right. in some sense uh subjective, maybe intersubjective. Mm-hmm. We yes. might conventionally agree that these are the standards. <laughs> right. But there's not like something magical about written no. word that says this is the right way to adjudicate right. the quality of this written word.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think the more that we have students who don't have these really sort of like elite backgrounds in elite educational institutions, when they come to us, I think we need to make space to recognize their capacity and intellectual abilities, even if they're speaking in a way that does not conform to the expectations that Mm -hmm. we tend to have, right? Like, you're not writing incomplete complete sentences, right? So how do we, if, if that's what we want, on the one hand, how do we teach that, right? Mm-hmm. So that our students can move across various genres of self-expression, but mm-hmm. also how do we become comfortable with something that is clearly rigorous and meeting intellectual expectations, While being in some kind of form that is less recognizable to us, Mm -hmm. and I think that's a big challenge because there aren't a lot of good models for it. Mm. Um, Well, and and I think it
0: also opens the door for discourse, right? right. So, like, I think our narrow text-based sort of views of what counts as uh, rigorous discourse Mm -hmm. means a lot of folks can't engage in discourse right
1: on their own terms. They have to learn our terms, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and and I do think that limits the perspectives Mm -hmm. that we can have.
1: Absolutely. And I've been learning a lot from like Twitter Mm -hmm. (laughs) recently of following various kinds of people who are doing things like experiments in ungrading or like epic finales instead of a final exam. Mm. (laughs) And I'm super inspired by those kinds of notions. But I also find myself once in a while being like, wait, no. (laughs) And then I have to remind myself, no, this is possible. Just keep an open mind for a second and see what it looks like and see how people are doing these things. Because I think that's what we need to push ourselves to do.
0: Um, So I went on a bit of a tangent about using Minecraft to assess student performance, and I decided to cut that out because it really doesn't have much to do with the rest of the stuff we're talking about. But when Nina and I got back on topic, we finished off our conversation by talking about why it's important to have scholarly discourse that actively engages with communities. So here's that last bit of our conversation
1: community members don't have the time or energy (laughs) to necessarily be making those connections and thinking about them differently. Like community members are trying to get food on the table, get to work, you know, do these everyday things. But as an anthropologist, I can say, you know, the food that's on your table is impacted by transnational policies and beef yeah. production.
0: <laughs> well, actually, I, I think I'm a little more optimistic about people thinking about those oh, things. Oh, good. I suspect people do think about those things. They might not have the theory and language to right. articulate them. That's and true. I, think I agree. That's somewhere where yes. I, th- I think academics are useful, right? Yes. We trade in the theory and mm-hmm. we trade in the, the articulation <laughs> of these things that might be, might be visible to other folks. That's true. But – Yep, are are clearly communicable.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and just to spend the time thinking about them I think is really important because you know, they can inform so much of what happens at you know, that impacts people's lives, right? City council meetings, school board mm-hmm. meetings, church meetings, right? These kinds of places where people are literally making community mm-hmm. could be could find the stuff that we know and think about useful, mm-hmm. um, and that would be ideal.
0: <laughs> okay. I would be, yeah, I would be really happy if like there happened to be like a church meeting sometime where people were <laughs> started talking about like my work on, like, food systems. Like, was, yes, I've succeeded.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and I don't think that's a far cry, right? I mean, we have community members whose church systems are doing yeah. things like packing lunch bags yeah. for hungry children and, you know, staffing the food shelf and, and these kinds of things. And I think that's not – I don't think that's a far-fetched idea. And I think that the institution should be promoting our involvement in, the, in those capacities. Right. In the same way that they do, you know, like economics is such a, a direct motor, right? So you can have an economics class, do an analysis and be like, if you plow the roads in this pattern, it will be the most efficient for the community or whatnot, right? That's a really direct outcome. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of the liberal arts kind of stuff, it seems less direct. Mm-hmm. And so we tend to be like, no, that's not – it's not important it's not directly applicable there's not some kind of uh outcome or product or deliverable <laughs> that's at the other end of that so we don't need to do that we shouldn't do it and i think that's a kind of a challenge for us
0: i actually think it's less that um i actually think so it, it, when you talk about economists and, and like political <laughs> scientists and folks like that uh i actually think it they made themselves relevant, right? Like, Ooh. I, right. So, like, mm-hmm. if you think about like who populates think tanks, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, is I think yes. it's less that they're kind of, in some sense, intrinsically right, right, more directly related to policy. Uh-huh. It's that they've very Cause... intentionally.
1: Position, position themselves. themselves to
0: be involved yep. in policy. Well, I think for a lot of us in the the kind of the broader range of like mm-hmm. social sciences and like liberal arts mm-hmm. haven't, right?
1: Right. I yeah. think we've
0: chosen to be <laughs> isolated from yeah. uh, from you know the politics.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Right? Um, mm-hmm.
0: when we could I mean there's nothing stopping there right. being an anthropology like think tank that like goes to communities and and That's you know so releases true. policy papers but, absolutely but like, we just don't
1: yeah mm-hmm.
0: uh, right like philosophers yep. could do that I Right, mean, yeah philosophy you know Western philosophy started mm-hmm. with that right? with yep. just, you know Socrates and a bunch of you know Greek dudes right. in Athens absolutely. decided to raise a stink
1: mm-hmm And I think a lot of our students are proving that that's the case, right? Because they get their BA degrees in like medieval studies and then they go do these jobs that would not on the surface seem to be the outcome of a medieval studies degree. And yet they're quite prepared to do the things that need to be done, right? To read Mm -hmm. critically, digest information, share it with other people, communicate effectively. Um, And I think making connections between literatures and, yeah. and things well, like that. And I th- I think we need to think about ourselves as these, like, think-tanky, contributive kind of people, yeah. for sure.
0: Well, I mean, right. Uh, I think even when you, you mentioned medieval studies, like I think even with medieval studies, it's not even the sort of the soft skills that you learn as medievalists. Right. I mean, medieval folks did things,
1: right? They yes, knew things. Yes, they uh, had no, politics. Be, yeah, yeah.
0: So, <laughs> Beowulf could just say, like, "Hey, you know, back in the six hundreds, and like right. there was this similar thing, absolutely. Right? Like, if you read yeah. Beowulf, you see this. Right, lesson.
1: people then were also having these same dialogues about immigrants and yeah, yeah. how to make communities welcoming places. Yeah, yeah. or yeah. not. Uh,
0: yeah, so like I actually think, mm-hmm. right, content-wise, I think even absolutely some of the the, the folks that. Uh, it, we mm-hmm. the, some of the fields that we think of as not being uh, poly, policy policy right. relevant can be
1: absolutely absolutely. Yeah. I think yep. we just
0: sometimes artificially like think of ourselves as not Definitely. engaging in those dialogues or that discourse. Absolutely, when we do. We just don't.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We just don't recognize it. Absolutely,
1: and one of the things that I would love to see in the future of an institution like Morris is. We have like the elder in residence program. Mm -hmm. I would love to see a whole cohort of communities, elders, Mm -hmm. whatever, who like team teach courses or are just present on campus Mm -hmm. and, you know, come to class and, you know, give presentations are invited to, you know, give lectures and these kinds of things. And they're just a part of the learning environment Mm -hmm. uh, because, again, that would open up you know, classically trained academics to this other kind of knowledge that is also important and relevant to where we're at and what we're trying to do uh, in a way that is really meaningful um, and, again, right, promotes the sustainability of our institution as, you know, welcoming varying kinds of knowledge production.
0: This brings us to the close of this episode. I hope that the conversation that I had with Nina spurred you in a manner that it spurred me to think about how political, economic, and social systems affect our daily lives. I also hope that our chat helped you consider the impact of cultural assumptions and norms on how we relate to one another. Moreover, I hope listening to Nina reminded you of the importance of equity and inclusion for the sustainability of small towns and institutions of higher learning. And finally, I hope this episode provided you with an opportunity to reflect upon how those of us who work within the academy might think about having more accessible scholarly discourse. In the next couple episodes, we'll meet poet, cookbook author, artist, curator, and teacher, Hyde Erdrich, and learn about her thoughts about food, education, and decolonization. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard... Please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute and the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.